Chapter 14 of The Black Bag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Black Bag by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter 14 Stratagems and Spoils. Prepared as he had been for the shock, Kirkwood was able to pick himself up quickly, uninjured, Mulready's revolver in his grasp. On his feet, straddling Mulready's insentient body, he confronted Calendar and Stryker. The face of the latter was a sickly green, the gift of his fright. The former seemed coldly composed, already recovering from his surprise and bringing his wits to bear upon the new factor which had been so unceremoniously injected into the situation. Standing, but leaning heavily upon a hand that rested flat on the table, in the other he likewise held a revolver, which he had apparently drawn in self-defense, at the crisis of Mulready's frenzy. Its muzzle was deflected. He looked Kirkwood over with a cool gray eye, the color gradually returning to his fat, clean-shaven cheeks, replacing the pardonable pallor which had momentarily rested thereon. As for Kirkwood, he had covered the fat adventurer before he knew it. Stryker, who had been standing immediately in the rear of Calendar, immediately cowered and cringed to find himself in the line of fire. Of the three conscious men in the brigantine's cabin, Calendar was probably the least confused or excited. Stryker was palpably unmanned. Kirkwood was tingling with a sense of mastery, but collected and rapidly revolving the combinations for the reversed condition which had been brought about by Mulready's drunken folly. His elation was apparent in his shining, boyish eyes, as well as in the bright color that glowed in his cheeks. When he decided to speak, it was with rapid enunciation, but clearly and concisely. Calendar, he began, if a single shot is fired about this vessel, the river police will be buzzing around your ears in a brace of shakes. The fat adventurer nodded assent, his eyes contracting. Very well, continued Kirkwood brusquely. You must know that I have personally nothing to fear from the police. If arrested, I wouldn't be detained a day. On the other hand, you... Hand me that pistol, Calendar. But first, please... Look sharp, my man. If you don't... He left the ellipsis to be filled in by the corpulent blackguard's intelligence. The latter, gray eyes still intent on the younger man's face, wavered, plainly impressed, but still wondering. Quick! I'm not patient tonight. No longer was Calendar of two minds. In the face of Kirkwood's attitude, there was but one course to be followed, that of obedience. Calendar surrendered an untenable position as gracefully as could be wished. "'I guess you know what you mean by this,' he said, tendering the weapon as per instructions. "'I'm doggoned if I do. You'll allow a certain latitude in consideration of my relief. I can't say we were anticipating this, uh, heaven-sent visitation.' Accepting the revolver with his left hand, and settling his forefinger on the trigger, Kirkwood beamed with pure enjoyment. He found the deference of the older man, tempered though it was by indomitable swagger, refreshing in the extreme. "'A little appreciation isn't exactly out of place,' 
come to think of it, he commented, adding with an eye for the captain, Stryker, you bold, bad butterfly, have you got a gun concealed about your unclean person? The captain shook visibly with contrition. No, Mr. Kirkwood, he managed to reply in a voice singularly lacking in his wanted bluster. Say, sir, suggested Kirkwood. No, Mr. Kirkwood, sir, amended Stryker eagerly. Now come round here and let's have a look at you. Please stay where you are, Calendar. Why, Captain, you're shivering from head to foot. Not ill, are you, you wag? Step over to the table there, Stryker, and turn out your pockets. Turn them inside out, and let's see what you carry in the way of offensive artillery. And, Stryker, don't be rash. Don't do anything you'd be sorry for afterwards. No fear of that, mumbled the captain, meekly shambling toward the table, and in his anxiety to give no cause for unpleasantness, beginning to empty his pockets on the way. Don't forget the sir, Stryker. And, Stryker, if you happen to think of anything in the line of one of your merry quips or jests, don't strain yourself holding in. Get it right off your chest, and you'll feel better. Kirkwood chuckled, in high conceit with himself, watching Calendar out of the corner of his eye, but with his attention centered on the infinitely diverting spectacle afforded by Stryker, whose predacious hands were trembling violently as, one by one, they brought to light the articles of which he had despoiled his erstwhile victim. "'Come, come, Stryker! Surely you can think of something witty. Surely you haven't exhausted the possibilities of that almanac joke. Couldn't you ring another variation on the lunatic wheeze? Don't hesitate out of consideration for me, Captain. I'm joke-proof. Perhaps you've noticed.' Stryker turned upon him an expression at once ludicrous, piteous, and hateful. "'That's all, sir,' he snarled, displaying his empty palms in token of his absolute tractability. "'Good enough. Now, right about face. Quick! Your back's prettier than your face, and, besides, I want to know whether your hip pockets are empty. I've heard it's the habit of you gentry to pack guns in your clothes.' "'None? That's all right, then.' Now, roost on the transom, over there, in the corner, Stryker, and don't move. Don't let me hear a word from you. Understand? Submissively, the captain retired to the indicated spot. Kirkwood turned to Calendar, of whose attitude, however, he had not been for an instant unmindful. Won't you sit down, Mr. Calendar? he suggested pleasantly. Forgive me for keeping you waiting. For his own part, as the adventurer dropped passively into his chair, Kirkwood stepped over Mulready and advanced to the middle of the cabin, at the same time thrusting Calendar's revolver into his own coat pocket. The other, Mulready's, he nursed significantly with both hands, while he stood temporarily quiet, surveying the fleshy face of the prime factor in the intrigue. A quaint, grim smile played about the American's lips, a smile a little contemptuous, more than a little inscrutable. In its light, Calendar grew restive and lost something of his assurance. His feet shifted uneasily beneath the table, and his dark eyes wavered, evading Kirkwood's. At length, he seemed to find the suspense unendurable. "'Well,' he demanded testily, "'what do you want of me?' I was just wondering at you, Calendar. 
and the last few days you've given me enough cause to wonder, as you'll admit. The adventurer plucked up spirit, deluded by Kirkwood's pacific tone. I wonder at you, Mr. Kirkwood, he retorted. It was good of you to save my life, and... I'm not so sure of that. Perhaps it had been more humane. Calendar owned the touch with a wry grimace. But I'm damned if I understand the high-handed attitude of yours, he concluded heatedly. Don't you? Kirkwood's humor became less apparent, the smile sobering. You will, he told the man, adding abruptly, Calendar, where's your daughter? The restless eyes sought the companionway. Dorothy, the man lied spontaneously, without tremor, is with friends in England. Why? Did you want to see her? I rather expected to. Well, I thought it best to leave her home, after all. I'm glad to hear she's in safe hands, commented Kirkwood. The adventurer's glance analyzed his face. Ah, he said slowly, I see. You followed me on Dorothy's account, Mr. Kirkwood? Partly, partly on my own. Let me put it to you fairly. When you forced yourself upon me back there in London, you offered me some sort of employment. When I rejected it, you used me to your advantage for the furtherance of your purposes, which I confess I don't understand, and made me miss my steamer. Naturally, when I found myself penniless and friendless in a strange country, I thought again of your offer, and tried to find you to accept it. Despite the fact that you're an honest man, Kirkwood? The fat lips twitched with premature enjoyment. I'm a desperate man tonight, whatever I may have been yesterday. The young man's tone was both earnest and convincing. I think I've shown that by my pertinacity in hunting you down. Well, yes. Calendar's thick fingers caressed his lips, trying to hide the dawning smile. Is that offer still open? His nonchalance completely restored by the very naivete of the proposition, Calendar laughed openly and with a trace of irony. The episode seemed to be turning out better than he had anticipated. Gently, his mottled fat fingers played about his mouth and chins as he looked Kirkwood up and down. I'm sorry, he replied, that it isn't. Now. You're too late, Kirkwood. I've made other arrangements. Too bad, Kirkwood's eyes narrowed. You force me to harsher measures, Calendar. Genuinely diverted, the adventurer laughed a second time, tipping back in his chair, his huge frame shaking with ponderous enjoyment. Don't do anything you'd be sorry for, he parroted, sarcastical, the young man's recent admonition to the captain. No fear, Calendar. I'm just going to use my advantage, which you don't dispute. The pistol described an eloquent circle, gleaming in the lamplight, to levy on you a little legitimate blackmail. Don't be alarmed. I shan't hit you any harder than I have to. What? stammered Calendar, astonished. What in hell are you driving at? Recompense for my time and trouble. You've cost me a pretty penny, first and last, with your nasty little conspiracy, whatever it's all about. Now, needing the money, I propose getting some of it back. I shan't precisely rob you, but this is a hold-up, all right, Stryker. Reproachfully, I don't see my pearl pin. 
"'I got an ear,' responded the sailor hastily, fumbling with his tie. "'Give it me, then,' Kirkwood held out his hand and received the trinket. Then, moving over to the table, the young man, while abating nothing of his watchfulness, sorted out his belongings from the mass of odds and ends Stryker had disgorged. The tale of them was complete. The captain had obeyed him faithfully. Kirkwood looked up, pleased. "'Now see here, Calendar, this collection of truck that I was robbed of by this resurrected Joe Miller here cost me upwards of a hundred and fifty. I'm going to sell it to you at a bargain.' say fifty dollars two hundred and fifty francs the juice you are calendar's eyes opened wide partly in admiration do you realize that this is next door to highway robbery my young friend high seas piracy if you prefer assented kirkwood with entire equanimity i'm going to have the money and you're going to give it up the transaction by any name would smell no sweeter calendar come fork over and if I refuse? I wouldn't refuse if I were you. Why not? The consequences would be too painful. You mean you'd puncture me with that gun? Not unless you attack or attempt to follow me. I mean to say that the Belgian police are notoriously a most efficient body, and that I'll make it my duty and pleasure to introduce them to you, if you refuse. But you won't, Kirkwood added soothingly. Will you, Calendar? No, the adventurer had become suddenly thoughtful. No, I won't. Glad to oblige you. He tilted his chair still farther back, straightening out his elephantine legs, inserted one fat hand into his trouser pocket, and with some difficulty extracted a combined billfold and coin purse, at once heavy with gold and bulky with notes. Moistening thumb and forefinger. How'll you have it? he inquired with a lift of his cunning eyes, and when Kirkwood had advised him, slowly counted out four fifty-franc notes, placed them near the edge of the table, and weighted them with five ten-franc pieces. And that all? he asked, replacing the pocketbook. That will be about all. I leave you presently to your unholy devices, you and that gay dog over there. The captain squirmed, reddening. "'Just by way of precaution, however, I'll ask you to wait in here till I'm off.' Kirkwood stepped backwards to the door of the captain's room, opened it, and removed the key from the inside. "'Please take Mulready in with you,' he continued. "'By the time you get out, I'll be clear of Antwerp. Please don't think of refusing me. I really mean it.' The latter clause came sharply as Calendar seemed to hesitate, his weary, wary eyes glimmering with doubt. Kirkwood, watching him as a cat her prey, intercepted a lightning-swift sidelong glance that shifted from his face to the port-lockers forward. But the fat adventurer was evidently to a considerable degree deluded by the very childlike simplicity of Kirkwood's attitude. If the possibility that his altercation with Mulready had been overheard crossed his mind, Calendar had little choice other than to accept the chance. Either way, he moved. The risk was great. If he refused to be locked in the captain's room, there was the danger of the police, to which Kirkwood had convincingly drawn attention. If he accepted the temporary imprisonment, he took a risk with the Gladstone bag. On the other hand, he had estimated Kirkwood's honesty as thoroughgoing, from their first interview. 
He had appraised him as a gentleman and a man of honor, and he did not believe the young man knew, after all. Perplexed, at length, he chose the smoother way, and with an indulgent lifting of eyebrows and fat shoulders, rose and waddled over to Mulready. "'Oh, all right,' he conceded, with deep toleration in his tone, for the idiosyncrasies of youth. "'It's all the same to me, Bo,' he laughed a nervous laugh. "'Come along, and lend us a hand, Stryker.' The latter glanced timidly at Kirkwood, his eyes pleading for leave to move which Kirkwood accorded with an imperative nod and a fine flourish of the revolver. Promptly, the captain sprang to Calendar's assistance, and between the two of them, the one taking Mulready's head, the other his feet, they lugged him quickly into the stuffy little stateroom. Kirkwood, watching and following to the threshold, inserted the key. "'One word more,' he counseled, a hand on the knob. Don't forget I've warned you what'll happen if you try to break even with me. Never fear, little one. Calendar's laugh was nervously cheerful. The Lord knows you're welcome. Thank you most to death, responded Kirkwood politely. Goodbye, and goodbye to you, Stryker. Glad to have humored your desire to meet me soon again. Kirkwood, turning the key in the lock, withdrew it and dropped it on the cabin table. At the same time, he swept into his pocket the money he had extorted of Calendar. Then he paused an instant, listening. From the captain's room came a sound of murmurs and scuffling. He debated what they were about in there. But time pressed. Not improbably, they were crowding for place at the keyhole, he reflected, as he crossed to the port locker forward. He had it slid up in a twinkling, and in another had lifted out the well-remembered black gladstone bag this seems to have been his first compound larceny as if stimulated by some such reflection he sprang for the companionway dropping the lid of the locker with a bang which must have been excruciatingly edifying to the men in the captain's room whatever their emotions the bang was mocked by a mighty kick shaking the door which kirkwood reflected opened outward and was held only by the frailest kind of a lock it would not hold long Spurred onward by a storm of curses, Stryker's voice chanting infuriated cacophony with calendars, Kirkwood leapt up the companionway even as the second tremendous kick threatened to shatter the panels. Heart in mouth, a chill shiver of guilt running up and down his spine, he gained the deck, cast loose the painter, drew in his rowboat, and dropped over the side— then, the glassstone bag nestling between his feet, sat down and bent to the oars. And doubts assailed him, pressing close upon the ebb of his excitement, doubts and fears innumerable. There was no longer a distinction to be drawn between himself and Calendar. No more could he esteem himself a better and more honest man than that accomplished swindler. He was not advised as to the Belgian code, but English law, he understood, made no allowance for the good intent of those caught in possession of stolen property, though he was acting with the most honorable motives in the world. The law, if he came within its cognizance, would undoubtedly place him on Calendar's plane and judge him by the same standard. To all intents and purposes, he was a thief and thief he would remain until the gladstone bag with its contents should be restored to its rightful owner 
Voluntarily, then, he had stepped from the ranks of the hunters to those of the hunted. He now feared police interference as abjectly as did Calendar and his set of rogues, and Kirkwood felt wholly warranted in assuming that the adventurer, with his keen intelligence, would not handicap himself by ignoring this point. Indeed, if he were to be judged by what Kirkwood had inferred of his character, Calendar would let nothing whatever hinder him, neither fear of bodily hurt nor danger of apprehension at the hands of the police, from making a determined and savage play to regain possession of his booty. Well, Kirkwood set his mouth savagely, Calendar should have a run for his money. For the present, he could compliment himself with the knowledge that he had outwitted the rogues, had lifted the jewels and probably two-thirds of their armament. He had also the start, the knowledge of their criminal guilt and intent, and his own plans to comfort him. As for the latter, he did not believe that Calendar would immediately fathom them. So he took heart of grace and tugged at the oars with a will, pulling directly for the city and permitting the current to drift him downstream at its pleasure. There could be no more inexcusable folly than to return to the Caistine landing and, possibly, the arms of the despoiled boat owner. At first, he could hear crash after splintering crash sounding dully muffled from the cabin of the Alethea, a veritable devil's tattoo beaten out by the feet of the prisoners. Evidently, the fastening was serving him better than he had dared hope. But, as the black rushing waters widened between boat and brigantine, the clamor aboard the latter subsided, indicating that Calendar and Stryker had broken out or been released by the crew. In ignorance as to whether he were seen or being pursued, Kirkwood pulled on, winning in under the shadow of the quays and permitting the boat to drift down to a lonely landing on the edge of the dockyard quarter of Antwerp. Here, alighting, he made the boat fast and, soothing his conscience with the surmise that its owner would find it there in the morning, strode swiftly over to the train line that runs along the embankment, swung aboard an adventitious car, and broke his first ten-franc piece in order to pay his fare. The car made a leisurely progress up past the old Steen Castle and the K Landing. Kirkwood, sitting quietly, the Gladstone bag under his hand, a searching gaze sweeping the waterside, no sign of the adventurers rewarded him, but it was now all chance, all hazard. He had no more heart for confidence. They passed the Hôtel du Commerce. Kirkwood stared up at its windows, wondering. A little further on, a disengaged fiacre, its driver alert for possible fares, turned a corner into the esplanade. At sight of it, Kirkwood, inspired, hopped nimbly off the tram-car and signaled the cabby. The latter pulled up, and Kirkwood started to charge him with instructions, something which he did haltingly, hampered by a slight haziness of purpose. While thus engaged, and at rest in the stark glare of the street lamps, with no chance of concealing himself, he was aware of a rising tumult in the direction of the landing, and, glancing round, discovered a number of people running toward him. With no time to wonder whether or no he was really the object of the hue and cry, he tossed the driver three silver francs. Gare Centrale, he cried, and drive like the devil. Driving into the fiacre, he shut the door and stuck his head out of the window, taking observations. 
A ragged fringe of silly rabble was bearing down upon them, with one or two gendarmes in the forefront, and a giant, who might or might not be Stryker, a close second. Furthermore, another cab seemed to have been requisitioned for the chase. His heart misgave him momentarily, but his driver had taken him at his word and generosity, and in a breath the fiacre had turned the corner on two wheels, and the glittering reaches of the embankment, drive and promenade, were blotted out, as if smudged with lamp-black, by the obscurity of a narrow and tortuous side-street. He drew in his head the better to preserve his brains against further emergencies. After a block or two, Kirkwood picked up the Gladstone bag, gently opened the door, and put a foot on the step, pausing to look back. The other cab was pelting after him with all the enthusiasm of a hound on a fresh trail. He reflected that this mad progress through the thoroughfares of a civilized city would not long endure without police intervention. So he waited, watching his opportunity. The fiacre hurtled onward, the driver leaning forward from his box to urge the horse with lash of whip and tongue, entirely unconscious of his fare's intentions. Between two streets, the mouth of a narrow and darksome byway flashed into view. Kirkwood threw wide the door and leaped, trusting to the night to hide a stratagem, to luck to save his limbs. Neither failed him. In a twinkling, he was on all fours in the mouth of the alley and as he picked himself up the second fiacre passed calendar himself poking a round bald pole out of the window to incite his driver's cupidity with promises of redoubled fare kirkwood mopped his dripping forehead and whistled low with dismay it seemed that from that instant on it was to be a vendetta with a vengeance calendar as he had foreseen was stopping at nothing at a dog-trot he sped down the alley to the next street on which he turned back more sedately toward the river debouching on the esplanade just one block from the hotel du commerce as he swung past the serried tables of a cafe whatever fears he had harbored were banished by the discovery that the excitement occasioned by the chase had already subsided Beneath the garish awnings, the crowd was laughing and chattering, eating and sipping its bock with complete unconcern. Heedless altogether of the haggard and shabby young man, carrying a black handbag, with a black shade of care for company, and a blacker threat of disaster dogging his footsteps. Without attracting any attention whatever, indeed, he mingled with the strolling crowds, making his way toward the Hôtel du Commerce yet he was not at all at ease his uneasy conscience invested the gladstone bag with a magnetic attraction for the public eye to carry it unconcealed in his hand furnished him with a sensation as disturbing as though its worn black sides had been stenciled stolen in letters of flame he felt it rendered him a cynosure of public interest an object of suspicion to the wide, cold world, that the gaze which lit upon the bag traveled to his face only to espy thereon the brand of guilt. For ease of mind, presently, he turned into a convenient shop and spent ten invaluable francs for a hand satchel big enough to hold the Gladstone bag. With more courage, now that he had the hateful thing under cover, he found and entered the Hôtel du Commerce in the little closet which served for an office over a desk visibly groaning with the weight of an enormous and grimy registry book a sleepy fat bland and good-natured woman of the belgian bourgeoisie presided 
a benign and drowsy divinity of even-tempered courtesy. To his misleading inquiry for Monsieur Calendar, she returned a cheerful permission to seek that gentleman for himself. Three flights, monsieur, in the front, suite seventeen it is. Monsieur does not mind walking up? she inquired. Monsieur did not in the least, though by no strain of the imagination could it, be truthfully said, that he walked up those steep and redolent stairways of the Hôtel du Commerce d'Anvers. More literally, he flew with winged feet, spurning each third padded step with a force that raised a tiny cloud of fine white dust from the carpeting. Breathless, at last he paused at the top of the third flight. His heart was hammering, his pulses drumming like wild things. There was a queer constriction in his throat, a fire of hope in his heart alternating with the ice of doubt. Suppose she were not there? What if he were mistaken? What if he had misunderstood? What if Mulready and Calendar had referred to another lodging-house? Pausing, he gripped the balustrade fiercely forcing his self-control, forcing himself to reflect that the girl, presuming for the sake of argument he were presently to find her, could not be expected to understand how ardently he had discounted this moment of meeting, or how strangely it affected him. Indeed, he himself was more than a little disturbed by the latter phenomenon, though he was no longer blind to its cause. But he was not to let her see the evidences of his agitation, lest she be frightened slowly schooling himself to assume a mask of eluding self-possession and composure he passed down the corridor to the door whose panel wore the painted legend seventeen and there knocked believing that he overheard from within a sudden startled exclamation he smiled patiently tolerant of her surprise burning with impatience as with a fever he endured a long minute's wait misgivings were prompting him to knock again and summon her by name when he heard footfalls on the other side of the door followed by a click of the lock the door was opened grudgingly a bare six inches of the alarmed expression in the eyes that stared into his he took no account his face lengthened a little as he stood there dumb panting staring and his heart sank down deep down into a gulf of disappointment waited sorely with chagrin. Then, of the two, the first to recover countenance, he doffed his cap and bowed. "'Good evening, Mrs. Hallam,' he said, with a rueful smile. End of chapter 14 Recording by William Tomko